Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 POD, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference on Reflections on Alnylam and Conquering Delivery. The POD conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from POD 2022. John Merganori, very happy to be here uh, to participate in this in this conference. Uh, I've heard about this group before, and this is my first time joining. Um, but obviously, it's a it's a really fantastic gathering of professionals uh, that are obviously committed to innovation um, and delivery, drug delivery um, across many different uh, aspects of it. I uh, I'm going to tell you a story about Alnylam and the founding of Alnylam and some of the journey of Elmylam, and then Anne's going to come up and we'll do a bit of a fireside chat. So that's the agenda for today. Now, to start with the Elmylam side of it, the journey really began about 20 years ago today, uh, almost exactly to this day, when I, working at Millennium Pharmaceuticals, was, was addressed and called up by some venture capitalists who had started Elmylam Pharmaceuticals focused on RNAi therapeutics. Now, I didn't know a lot about RNAi at the way beginning, but I got to learn a little bit more about it over time. And I realized that if we could harness the endogenous cellular pathway of RNA interference, that there was a real opportunity to create a whole new class of medicines, something which is rare, arguably rare in our industry, something that you could look back to the 70s and 80s with recombinant DNA and monoclonal antibodies. That's a type of opportunity that was afforded to us with RNA interference at that early time. Now, we knew at the beginning that making drugs out of small interfering RNAs, the molecules that mediate RNA interference, was going to be hard. We knew it would be difficult. Um, These are large molecules. They've got um, uh, particularly bad physical chemical properties as it relates to delivery. Um, They have to get inside the cell. You have to avoid off-target effects. You have to avoid immune activation. But most importantly, we had to achieve delivery of these molecules inside of the cell. And delivery, delivery, delivery became sort of the mantra at Elmylam in those early days. Now, we had an early win with the use of cholesterol conjugates, and we published those data in 2004, pretty early in the company's uh, uh, life cycle. But we just had a hard time getting the potency of cholesterol conjugated sRNAs Um, high enough so that we can really make them into drugs. We had to use very high doses. We then turned to lipid nanoparticles. Um, And we had a two-pronged attack attack with lipid nanoparticles. We had a collaboration with uh, a fantastic lab, and I know that Bob Langer was here yesterday, but with the uh, laboratory of Bob Langer and Dan Anderson over at MIT, probably one of the best academic groups you can work with. And then we had a collaboration with a couple of companies based out of Vancouver, Canada, um, one called Inex and the other called Proteva. Now, both of these companies were born from the same academic leader, a great scientist by the name of Peter Cullis, but they were also in a bitter fight with each other at the time about what company could do what and what company could not do what. And we actually got actively involved in trying to bring what at the time I referred to as peace in Vancouver, and actually helped the companies ultimately come together and merge. Now, little did I know that our effort at peace in Vancouver would be about as fruitful 
as Neville Chamberlain's was in World War II. Um, but in any case, these two companies, Proteva and Inex, got together. They formed a new company called Techmira. Now, the first lipid nanoparticle that we put into development used a lipid, an ionizable lipid, from the Langer-Anderson collaboration, a lipid called ND98. But as we worked this up and we started doing our GLP talk studies, we realized that this lipid was just too um, toxic, even in the cancer setting that we're, we were aiming to, to put it into. Um, the therapeutic index just wasn't there. So we had to stop development of that, of that product. We then turned to um, a, an ionizable lipid out of the Tecmira collaboration called DLIN-DMA, which um, had been shown by a collaboration with Alnylam and Tecmira scientists to generate impressive knockdown of target genes in the liver of non-human primates in a paper that we published in 2006 by Zimmerman et al. Now, the therapeutic index was still narrow with the DLIN-DMA lipid. So we started the collaboration with Peter Cullis and some scientists that had left the new Tecmira um, that was aimed at finding even better lipids. And this was done with the approval and the agreement of the, the Tecmira management at the time. In this collaboration, we discovered a novel lipid called MC3, which showed an over tenfold improvement in the therapeutic index compared to DLIN DMA a really impressive result. So we saw an improvement of potency without any uh, cost as it related to tolerability. Now at the time, Tecmira didn't like that result because we, uh, even though they had agreed to our collaboration with Peter Cullis, they didn't like the fact that we found a new lipid that was so much better than DLIN-DMA, so they sued us. And we went through a lawsuit process. We ultimately settled that lawsuit favorably at the end of the day, just a couple years later. Now, meanwhile, at Alnilum, our scientists kept working on the conjugate-based technology that they started with cholesterol conjugates. And as I said before, cholesterol conjugates didn't really pan out because of the potency issue. And we almost stopped the investment in conjugate-based approaches because it wasn't showing a lot of promise. And in the meantime, the lipid nanoparticle technology was showing quite a bit of promise. Uh, but our head of chemistry, Mano Monoharan, um, a very wonderful oligonucleotide chemist, pleaded with me in my office to just do that one last experiment. And thankfully, I conceded and said, okay, let's just do that one last experiment. And sure enough, a couple years later, he uh, brought to me a set of data uh, in rodent studies showing a markedly improved potency using a GALMAC conjugated small interfering RNA with single-digit milligram per kilogram uh, knockdown of target genes uh, in initially rodents and then subsequently uh, in, uh, in non-human primates. And what's amazing is that in the subsequent decade of time from those initial data with Galnac conjugates, the work, the optimization work that our scientists did, oftentimes learning from clinical results and bringing those results back into the lab, resulted in improved safety and tolerability of those Galnac conjugates, improved potency, of those molecules by over tenfold, improved durability to the point where we could achieve up to an annual dosing regimen for these sRNAs conjugated to Galnac conjugates for knockdown of target genes, uh, amongst other properties as well. And so this uh, remarkable work really is a credit to the um, endeavors of our scientists and 
the work they did to improve that platform. But it really speaks to the fact that in optimizing a delivery system, you often need to use the learnings from human studies to inform what you need to improve upon in your preclinical studies as well. We also, during that time, figured out how to achieve the beginnings of extrahepatic delivery. And some of those results were recently published in Nature Biotechnology. But those resulted in a very large alliance that we formed with Regeneron back in 2019, uh, including $800 million up front. Now, in the Almylum story, a very notable point in time was in 2010. The, the fervor that the pharmaceutical industry had for RNA interference in the first decade of the century automatically, or not automatically, but, um, but all of a sudden went away. They lost interest in RNA interference. They thought it was taking too long to achieve delivery. They were uh, dissatisfied with the fact that they couldn't get it to work in oncology settings, which is where the real interest was at the end of the day. And so they gave up on the field. And we got hit by a two by four. We were trading as a public company under cash. Um, a, a, unfortunately, a feeling that a lot more companies have these days. But back then, um, we felt sort of singled out in some ways. Um, and not only had our investors fled interest in the company, but uh, you know we obviously had internal morale challenges with our scientists feeling like, well, what's wrong? You know, the world has left uh, alnylam and RNA interference. So we crafted a five-year plan at that time. We knew that the thing that mattered the most was generating human clinical data. And we, showed, we drafted a plan called Alnylam 5x15 at that point, where we said, let's focus on the delivery approach that we knew we had confidence in, namely, at the time, lipid nanoparticles, but also, in an emerging way, galnet conjugates. And let's build our clinical pipeline in the setting of targeting liver-expressed disease genes, especially liver-expressed genes with human target validation and with biomarkers that you can read out early in clinical development. And I remember meeting with my team at the time about this new strategy, and I said, you know, let's, we're going to aim for five clinical programs by the end of 2015. And my team looked at me and they said, well, what about two by 15, two programs by the end of 15? And I'm, I said, no, that doesn't sound right. I think we've got to go for something bigger. They said, okay, three by 15. And after the negotiation went on for a little bit, uh, we ended up in my position, which was five by 15. And they bought, they bought into it. They bought into it, thankfully. And there, there, at that point, we began this journey of translating um, these, uh, the science of delivery into building a real clinical pipeline. And in the fall of 2011, we had the first fruit of that effort. In, um, in, in that time, in October of 2011, we saw a patient, patient 5003, where for the first time we, show, we showed clear knockdown of a target gene in a human setting with one of our lipid nanoparticle programs. And that was really a landmark moment. Now, the early clinical success that we had with those lipid nanoparticles then followed with the Galnac conjugates as well. And before you knew it, we had programs in transthyretin amyloidosis, acute hepatic porphyria, hemophilia, a rare kidney disease called primary hyperoxaluria, and even a common disease uh, like hypercholesterolemia targeting uh, an, enzy uh, an enzyme called PCSK9. Now, we soon realized that we couldn't do everything, so we partnered the PCSK9 program with our, our friends at the medicines company, a company I had known really well for quite some time, and then we formed a global alliance with Sanofi in 2014 that included 700 million upfront where Sanofi became our rest of world partner for 
the pipeline that we were building in the rare disease setting. We ultimately ended up having eight programs that achieved clinical development, were in the clinic by the end of 2015, not just five. So it really was an example of how we set out a really big goal for ourselves and we ultimately achieved it in a very significant way. Now the five by 15 strategy laid a very solid foundation for alnylamine for the development of RNAi therapeutics as a whole new class of medicines. By the time 2015 came around, we needed a new five-year plan. We called it Alnylam 2020. And in this plan, the goal was to have three or more marketed products um, on, you know, on the market by the end of 2020. Now, that was a pretty lofty goal because we had only just begun our first phase retrial at that time. So we had five years from that point to complete that phase three, do some other phase three trials, and bring you know, three or more products to the market. Pretty lofty goal. It was also notable that transitioning from early development into late development as a company was not an easy task. You have to really take seriously the design of that first phase three trial because you know that if the phase three trial doesn't come out a positive, it's a very fatal, could be a very fatal event. So we took all that very, very seriously. We also had to build a lot of different capabilities in the company around CFC and, and regulatory and medical affairs and other capabilities that uh, are not uh, necessarily something you have as a research-based company or as an early clinical development-based company. In the meanwhile, there's a dark cloud on a horizon. One of our phase three trials that we started, a, a study called Endeavor, with our first galnot conjugate, a molecule called Revusaran, ended up showing a safety signal. And when the Data Safety and Monitoring Board was unblinded to look at the safety signal, they notified us of, of a mortality imbalance in the study against that molecule. So we had to stop the program. We had to stop our first galnot conjugate program in development in the course of a phase three trial. And of course, as you can imagine, we were impacted very negatively by Wall Street, who punished us um, notably with a, the perfunctory 50% decrease of our share price at the time, and the whole new questions around well, whether the platform that Almylam would build would ultimately yield fruit, yet again uh, arose. Now, I do believe in the, in the quote from Friedrich Nietzsche that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and that turned out to be the case with, uh, with, with that Endeavor study result and, and Revusaran, because within one year, we had the results of another phase three trial, the Apollo study, with a molecule called Onpatro, which is a molecule that ultimately made it to market in 2018. And the results were striking. The primary endpoint hit with, an, with a p-value of 9.26 times 10 to the minus 24th, almost the reciprocal of Avogadro's number. And all the secondary endpoints hit as well. And I remember at, the, at a scientific meeting in Paris in 2017, when we first presented the full results, I was sitting on the stage with, uh, with Barry Green, our president, and Akshay Vishnu, our head of R&D, to my right and my left. And as the primary endpoint results were presented by the principal investigator, you could hear gasps in the audience because the results were so striking. And it was at that moment that I realized that RNAi therapeutics had arrived, not with, a, not with a whimper, but with a bang, with a purposeful twist of the T.S. Eliot quote. We then filed our first NDA, and before you knew it, in August of 2018, we had our first RNAi therapeutic on the market, 16 years after the start of Alnylam, and after about $5 billion 
of invested capital in the company, just to give you a sense of some of the math. Now, in the following years, I received many other phone calls from our chief medical officer around other phase three trial results. And the net of all that is that at this point in time, there are five RNAi therapeutics that are now on the market. And all of those were really born out of that initial period of time, that five by 15 strategy that ultimately led to the creation of really a global biopharma company, which is where Almylam is today. And it's really remarkable to see all that achievement. Now, there's a lot of times people ask me, you know, what, did you, what are some of the key learnings from what you did at Almylam and what are the things that you um, reflect on? And we can spend a lot of time on that for sure. But there's really a, a very important quote from the poet George Bernard Shaw, which I think really summarizes the most important lesson about Almylam at the end of the day. The quote goes as follows. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And the story of Almylam is really the story of unreasonable men and women who join together persistently in an effort to bring a whole new class of medicines forward for patients. And so with that, Anne, why don't you come on the stage and we can do some Q&A. John, what an inspirational story. This is amazing. It sort of seems like it, it, everything is going south, and then you make it go north. So well, We try. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so let's see. How much time? We've got enough time. Great. So one technical question first, and I'm very interested in how did an alnylam screen for off-target uh, effects? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, Ann. So, you know, one of the beauties of a sequence-based medicine is that you can design your uh, targeted, uh, your, your molecule with the target in mind and so forth. But of course, a, a downside potentially is what about off-target effects that could occur? And, and we know that the RNAi machinery with, the, with, a, with an on-target is, is relatively specific, mm -hmm. but there are off-targets and they can occur. And so we learned a set of, of uh, experimentally, we ultimately over time, learned a number of features of, of an sRNA that would make it more specific and, and more on target. And it was also quite important because it turns out that off-target effects mediate um, idiosyncratic liver uh, enzyme elevations in humans, uh, something we didn't see in, in, in preclinical species. And so we learned that we had to really optimize around uh, on-target effects Mm -hmm. as a way of achieving very safe and well-tolerated sRNAs. One of the tricks that we developed was the use of a destabilizing nucleotide in the seed region of the sRNA that basically um, destabilized the sRNA's off-target effects relative to the on-target effects. And so that was an important modification that ultimately improved the safety profile of these molecules. Yeah. Yeah. So preclinical versus human studies. You said something when you were speaking about going from human data and going back to the preclinical, that it would help inform your preclinical as well. That's right. Yeah. That was critical. And the, the work that, speaking of off-targets, the work that was done 
to um, identify highly selective sRNAs that were extremely well tolerated in humans required those human data that were then brought back into research investigations and our chemistry group to come up with solutions that were then tested in humans. We actually took molecules that had off-target effects in a phase one study and took the same sequence with that destabilizing chemistry back in man to show mm -hmm. that we could achieve a much safer profile at the end of the day. Yeah. Very interesting going back and forth. Usually Absolutely. that doesn't tend to be the way. Yeah. yeah. So partnering figured very strongly in what you spoke about. And yeah. some were easy, some were fabulous, and some weren't. Yeah. Um, can you give this audience, who is obviously very interested in partnering, a little bit more about that in terms of what what you could see at the beginning. Did you have a sense for how well the partnering might go and what you needed to look out for? Any, any good words about partnering? Well, we formed well over 20 partnerships during, um, during our journey uh, in building El Nylum. And, you know, of the over $7.5 billion that we raised as a company, um, you know, over half of that came from partnerships. Mm -hmm. So those partnerships were critical yeah. And obviously, yeah. from a funding perspective, really key to the company. But they also brought capabilities. So, for example, we formed a partnership in 2014 with Sanofi to really um, benefit from their ex-U.S. Um, global capabilities in terms of commercialization of rare disease medicines. Mm -hmm. um, and that was an important partnership that we thought would help enable um, the you know, breadth of our pipeline reaching patients around the world. Um, you know, because they had acquired Genzyme, they had a very strong interest in, um, in rare disease medicines, especially in the developing world, um, in addition to, to, you know, more, more um, developed countries. Um, so that's a good example of how partnerships were really thought of strategically, not just for funding, but also for capabilities, capabilities. at the end of the day. More recently, we did a partnership with Regeneron uh, around our CNS delivery um, efforts. And the reason we did that partnership was in part to gain access to the incredible human genetic capabilities of, of Regeneron that they built over the years and the ability of finding, um, you know, genetically validated targets in the CNS for the development of innovative products. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the year that was difficult, 2010 into 2011, really a difficult time. And I think right now we can relate to this in some of the biotech stocks not doing too well. Um, you were very bold, obviously, and you wanted to excite not only the stockholders that, that you had and Wall Street, but you wanted to inspire your employees. And one of the things that Bob Langer said yesterday was what a fabulous CEO you are. No. So, um, he's lying. <laughs> well, he lies very convincingly, and as does your, your uh, talk just a moment ago. So, uh, not about lies, but about being convincing that you're a great CEO. I should, I should modify that. And um, so, when you're having, you had a couple of layoffs, as I found out, and during that time, that could be a really tough time for the company. Yeah. As a CEO, how did you keep your everybody who was there at Elm Island, still inspired, still enthusiastic, not looking for another job. How did you keep them? You know, it's it's interesting. You know, the 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 period of time in 2010 when when you know the farm industry gave up on RNAi, um, you know, the investment community also gave up on RNAi. 
we, we knew that we had a strong balance sheet. We had about 300 million of cash on our balance sheet, which um, is, a, is a pretty good position. But we knew that we would need time yeah. to basically convince people with mm-hmm. clinical data that we can make drugs out of, these, uh, out of this technology. Um, and so we did have to do a layoff uh, in 2010. And then we did a second one in 2012, which was extremely painful yeah. to do. Um, and probably the most difficult thing I ever had to do as a CEO was to, was to go through that process. Now, um, at the same time, this focusing of the company on this clinical direction and the building of the pipeline, and in some ways, you know, it was the shedding of a, of a romantic vision toward a more practical, um, you know, um, destination, um, was also a motivating moment for our employees we, we um, you know, we, we rallied behind 5 by 15. Our employees rallied behind 5 by 15. We had chemists and, and, and biologists and clinicians assemble as teams and basically triage different target opportunities that we would endorse for investment behind. Um, and that actually became a really motivating moment within, within the company. So even though it was... It was a very dark moment as a company in many ways. It was also a very energized moment on the inside. And people really were excited. And I think when you go through a hard period like that, providing people line of sight for where you need to go for the future from a leadership standpoint is an important lesson for me. And it certainly turned out to be very true at Al Malum. So you created a lot of trust amongst the people that were there. Yeah. And um, so line of sight, Any, anything else you can think of about that, that, you, that maybe you just do it naturally, but uh, that you can impart some more wisdom with regard to that. These are tough times, and so how do you keep people you know, it, really it, excited it, and motivated? It's, you know, we, we had, at the time we had a, um, we, we, uh, it was very clear to me and, and, and I expressed this with the team, that we, we really needed to generate the clinical data to, to prove that we could do this. And that was the only thing that mattered. And I used the analogy of the, um, the jingle bell in um, the Polar Express and, um, you know, the little boy who could hear the jingle bell but nobody else could. And, of course, he believes in Santa Claus and nobody else does. And, um, you know, it's a great story. But I use that analogy to say... People will not understand and believe what we're doing until they can see those results. And in fact, we, we, could, we could mark the, the size of the bell from jingle to liberty, if you will, based on the quality and the extent of the clinical data we were generating. And that provided people with a sense of direction for how we had to advance the company and how we had to advance the technology in a very good way. That's great. Now for our last question, because we have just a couple minutes left, is going to be more future-oriented in terms of the value proposition for uh, siRNA and the delivery of that. What, what final remarks do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's, I think it's an exciting time for RNAi Therapeutics. There are five approved medicines. There are, you know, dozens, uh, well over 25 programs in active clinical development across the industry. Um, I, I keep learning of more and more stealth efforts, even within big pharma, around, around RNAi-based uh, programs. 
So I think this is becoming a, a bona fide category of medicines that will be here for the long term. Um, I mean, you even have um, drugs like Lecvio targeting PCSK9 that are, you know, in prevalent disease settings, right? Um, with the potential for treating millions of people around the world at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm a believer that, that as it relates to liver-targeted SRNAs, you're going to continue to see growth of new and new products that get to market. Um, you know, we know the way of, we know now the key ingredients to making these molecules effectively, safely, potently. Um, and I think you'll just see more and more come out of that from the industry. The real opportunity comes in extrahepatic delivery. Um, and, you know, there's been some promising work with lipophilic conjugated SRNAs in the CNS that, that I, as I said, were published just last month or so in Nature Biotechnology. That opens up the door potentially to a new tissue. The first human data from that will arrive at the end of this year or early next year in a program targeting amyloid precursor protein. But I think even beyond the CNS, there's a potential for opening up yet more and more tissues. And I think it's going to be using delivery vehicles like lipid nanoparticles in some cases or other conjugate-based approaches, other ligand receptor pairs and other cell types. I mean, in the ideal world, we would have a zip code, um, address zip code type approach for every cell type in the body for um, sRNAs. I think that still needs more research to get there. But I think that is where the world will go over time. And it's an exciting world. Definitely it is. So um, you've heard it here. So very exciting prospects here for RNA delivery. And so uh, one very last, one second left here. Are you going to write that book that talks about all of this? <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I wrote an article in Nature Biotech that, that um, on these reflections, and feel free to take a look at them. And I, I really enjoyed writing that article. There, there's probably a book in there, um, yeah. but I'll have to find the time to write it. <laughs> okay, that's Nature Biotech May this year, and uh, he wrote that in one weekend, so I'm confident he's got a book in him. Okay, thank you very much, John. Thanks, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.